This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Is streaming the savior of the music industry or will it kill the music business as we know it? This argument has been swirling since the streaming company Spotify opened its doors in 2008. A recent article by freelance writer and editor Liz Pelly enters this debate strongly on the side that Spotify's intentions to dominate the music world with their own branded playlists and possibly algorithmically created music spell doom for independent labels and artists, if not the entire industry. But is that true for streaming across the board? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we talked to Liz Pelly about her article for thebaffler.com entitled The Problem with Muzak, and to Peter Harris about his streaming platform, Resonate.is, which provides an alternative model for streaming that circumvents the problem of corporate involvement and investment. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Liz Pelly. Liz, welcome to the future of what. Hey, thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk to you today about this article that you wrote that is in thebaffler.com. It's called The Problem with Muzak, which I love as a title. <laughs> so there's a lot in this article, so I kind of want to have us unpack it a piece at a time rather than try to do an overview because it's awfully dense. Mm -hmm. The first thing I just wanted to touch on is this article deals a lot with Spotify and specifically not with some of Spotify's competitors, namely Apple Music and Amazon. And you give a particular reason for that. So can you explain that to our listeners? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think that all of these companies are deserving of criticism and that we should have these conversations about Apple, Amazon, and all of the different streaming services and the concept of streaming in general. But For this piece, I was thinking specifically about what makes Spotify different from companies like Apple and Amazon, which is, I think, the product that Spotify prides itself on, which is sort of its music discovery tools, its algorithmic recommendations, its playlists, its way of sort of being a brand and a data company. And so in the piece I write that Amazon and Apple, their interest in music is making their products more valuable, the hardware that they're selling. So for example, Apple Music makes Apple's laptops and iPhones more valuable on Amazon. Amazon Music makes things like Alexa is more valuable. Mm-hmm. Whereas Spotify, the product that they're selling is their ability to know your taste and to be able to um, show you new playlists and introduce you to new music. I feel like, you know, one of the most common narratives that you see in terms of people's love of the magic of Spotify is people posting, oh my God, my Spotify weekly Discover playlist knows me better than anyone else. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like something that I feel like you see on social media all the time because the algorithms don't understand the concept of criticism. I constantly get any posts that people on Facebook make about Spotify, like delivered into my newsfeed. So I'm constantly seeing these things that like random people I know from college and high school are posting about Spotify and streaming and it's often stuff like that. Yeah. So that's kind of part of the basis of focusing on Spotify specifically in the piece. Yeah. The other thing that you bring up that I think is a really important difference between those three companies is that because Apple makes the bulk of its income from hardware sales. And Amazon, of course, you know, is the everything store where people go to get whatever they're getting. You know, their music arms are are arms within a bigger superstructure, whereas Spotify is, is just a streaming platform and the source of their revenue where they get their cash from is largely venture capital raised money. So you mentioned in the article that in 2017, Spotify was valued at $16 billion based on the investments that they'd received that far. Mm -hmm. And that number is 
sure to go up this year as they started announcing plans to go public. Right. And and I think that's a really important point because, you know, for any company that's got a venture capital investment, you know, to do an IPO is kind of the gold ring. Like that's where you're headed with this. That's when you get to cash in your chips. And that's going to change a lot. You know, I mean, people have been talking about this now for 10 years. Like it's going to change a lot when Spotify goes public. We'll, we'll all have to be sort of like holding on to our seatbelts to find out what happens at that point. And they've announced that they're going to do that like first or second quarter of this year. I mean, it's, it's imminent. Yeah. And I feel like that sort of sense of endless like growth without it actually making very much stable profit is sort of frightening for a company that is starting to become basically like the biggest new center of power in music and have so many stakes in so many different areas of music and how artists, you know, distribute their music, but also make revenue. And also I feel like the threat that Spotify plays to like labels and press and they're getting into editorial and pressing vinyl and videos and, you know, artists are getting encouraged to like release their music directly to streaming services instead of putting out albums and for all of this like power and influence to be wrapped up so much in this one company that has like so much money thrown at it but like no proven sustainable business model is like pretty strange definitely so let's get into i mean that that was like a pretty good overview of of where you go with this article i'd like to break it down to start with one of the first things you say in the article is that Spotify's front browse screen presents a classic illusion of choice. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, totally. So I think the illusion of choice idea is just when you stare at the browse screen, there's like a, you know, seemingly endless feed and tons of content and playlists and new releases. And they have a concert suggestion feed and now a podcast and video link and genres and mood. And it seems like pretty limitless, but once you start unpacking it and looking into things further, it's pretty clear that a lot of those playlists are either serving the interests of Spotify, the major labels that they have either not like partnerships with, but sort of uh, responsibility to, or also in some cases, brands and advertisers. So I think in terms of like the illusion of choice, it's it's to me that gets at like the confusion on the platform between like what is editorial and what is paid for and how there isn't a great sense of literacy by most users of Spotify about what they're seeing when they open the platform and where it comes from and who paid for it to be there and whether it is created by curators or created by algorithms or a combination of both. You know, a a term that I heard for the first time at a presentation from a Spotify person was human machine curated playlists, which kind of speaks to the nature of a lot of how their platform works and is something that a lot of people don't yet understand how it works. Yeah. So the title of the article is The Problem with Muzak. So go into what Muzak is a little bit so that, you know, I mean, I know there are some listeners to this podcast who actually didn't live through the era of Muzak. So you might have to explain exactly what that was. Yeah. So Muzak literally was a, a company that started in the early 1930s um, that would create music for retail locations and offices. Um, It was basically like a company that made background music or curated background music for offices and retailers. But I think that a lot of people, when they hear the word music, what they think of is background music, more elevator music, which I actually don't know if they ever even made elevator music. I'm not sure. But I think that's kind of like the thing that people think of, Mm -hmm. sort of easy listening. Or in some cases, you know, in the article, I say an example of how in the 1930s, they got into the business of making productivity music for offices where they would track data on what music worked and made for more productive office environments um, mm-hmm. and factor that into their playlists, which when I read about that, you know, it really like reminded me of the focus category on Spotify's browse page under moods and genres, which also, you know, it, it's pretty similar focus music. So when I was learning more about how 
the concept of playlist has a lot of implications for how artists are releasing their music and how they're releasing albums, but also has these sort of aesthetic influences as well in terms of artists like making music that fits more onto playlists. So I feel like when I'm talking about the problem with music, it's kind of like getting at the way that the platform has influenced all music to be more like music. Like when I think when music is being influenced to be more playlist friendly or to better like fit on a playlist with other songs that aren't like it, kind of like contributing to this environment where all music is more like music, which I think is like one of the most pressing like implications of this platform. was Mystic by Cindy Wilson. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Liz Pelly. So there's kind of two things going on here, I think. What you're saying is that Spotify itself is curating an environment or facilitating an environment of like what we'd call lean back listening, right? Where people put music on and it just stays on in the background and it's kind of this background music and it's not, you're not listening to it because you like a specific artist. You're just like, oh, this is my Spotify and chill playlist or whatever. And I'm just going to put it on and I'm going to work all day and it'll just be there in the background and that'll make me happy or whatever the mood algorithm has, you know, you has chosen the mood that you've chosen, the algorithm that you've chosen to listen to. So that's the listener, right? But then you're also talking about because this environment, you know, because Spotify is sort of the king of streaming, artists are feeling like they need to make music that's going to get played on the most popular playlists. Right. And creating music that you call 
emotional wallpaper, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is also a good term. <laughs> so those are like sort of the two contentions that you're talking about right at this point. There's another facet to this debate that came out last year. There's a bunch of conversations about it, which was that this contention that Spotify is creating fake artists. Mm -hmm. And you don't go into that in this article, but I would be interested in your opinion on that. What is your thought on that? Yeah, it's interesting. I I definitely could have written about the fake artists phenomenon in this piece as well, because I think it speaks a lot to the sort of different ways that the platform undercuts artists in favor of its own content. So the fake artist phenomenon came about when some folks like discovered that Spotify had sort of commissioned these musicians who mostly had previously been making music for films and advertisements and things like that to make music to fit specifically into some of its most popular mood playlists. So yeah, I think that that whole story relates to several of the points made in the article in terms of the different ways that the platform's undercutting artists and also just like how tightly the platform is controlling what ends up on its most popular playlist down to the fact that they actually would commission work specifically for these playlists. And I think that it came up a lot in terms of the chill playlists and sort of like the easy listening ambient playlists, but I totally wouldn't be surprised if a similar phenomenon proved to be true on music of all genres in the future. That might have already started to happen. I'm not sure, though. I'm not really sure where the fake artists argument or or supposition ended up, because my understanding was that it wasn't so much that these artists were fake. Mm -hmm. It was more that they were producing music sort of directly just for these Spotify playlists. And then they had real lives as musicians and producers and stuff like that. And they made other types of music, but they also made these particular pieces that sort of went well with these more vibey playlists that are more like background music style. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, to me, it kind of seems like they're more like session players or people who maybe had their own music practice, but then on the side for work, they were also taking these jobs, making playlists. So, I mean, I think that, you know, some people made an argument that this was providing more work for artists, but I think that if it contributes to an environment that ultimately undercuts work for other artists, or if it contributes to this environment that's like not contributing to a sustainable and economic system for artists, that like it's ultimately pretty harmful. So I would say that like up until this point in in this conversation, The only thing that I would challenge you about a little bit, because I definitely, I have a lot of points of agreement with you in this article, like really big ones. Mm -hmm. But the one point I would challenge you on is, so how is Spotify really that different from like commercial radio? Because commercial radio has been doing the exact same thing for, you know, 90 years, like basically just trying to to appeal to this, this group of people who I always say on this show, 90% of people don't like music in America. But like, I, I think what I'm really trying to say there is 90% of people are not obsessed music fans like you and me. They're just mm-hmm. people who are more than happy to listen to whatever's on. You know, it's like you push the button, hot 97 comes on or whatever, and you just listen and you're happy. And that's, and that is, so like that lean back listener, I feel like a huge number of people in America really are lean back listeners. And so I feel like Spotify in this exact case that we're discussing this sort of like passive, moody, you know, emotional wallpaper style music, like that actually is not that weird, I think, in the in the music world. Yeah, I think that what it comes down to is that like we're currently in this moment where like all musicians are being convinced that this is a platform that's supposed to work for them from like your independent musicians to your big pop stars. And I think that that to me is like what is most striking about it is that like if you're an independent musician before this age of Spotify and streaming, like I don't think that the mechanisms of how commercial radio works necessarily would have a direct impact on your ability to get paid for your work or like your ability to connect with like new listeners. It was like different ecosystems. And the idea that all artists are supposed to conform to the same ecosystem that only works for certain artists is like, to me, what I think makes it different. So I think that a conversation that I've heard people have is that like, 
there needs to be alternative systems that work for like all different types of artists. And like maybe in the future, this like Spotify, chill playlist, lean back listening, emotional wallpaper style of distributing music will be something that works for certain artists, but it's clearly not something that works for all artists. And I don't think that all artists should have to be expected to conform to this model that absolutely doesn't work for them. So I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, it's just like not all like independent artists in the past would have had to be implicated in whether or not commercial radio like worked for them or not. Well, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the nice part, if you can call it nice, about the landscape of commercial radio for the last 90 years is that the independents were pretty much completely shut out of it. So the independent labels and the independent artists on independent labels just had this other marketplace to themselves. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. we had college radio. We had non-commercial radio. We had, you know, live performances. We had we just had a different playing field because we knew that we weren't going to get any of our artists onto commercial radio because it was pretty much a closed market. And you know, things have changed a little bit in that area, in that arena, simply because the way that labels have functioned has, has changed. You know, with the big recession, a lot of major labels laid off a ton of people, and some of those people went out and started independent labels and then signed really popular artists. So Taylor Swift is now on an independent label, which is a genuine independent label. It's not funded at all by major. You couldn't call it a major. But she's the biggest artist on Spotify. I think, oh, wait, no, is she number two? I think she's number two. I recently looked. I think it's like Ed Sheeran or somebody is number Yeah, I think one. Ed Sheeran's the most popular artist last yeah. year. Yeah. I also, you know, last year I've started doing some reporting on like folks who are trying to create alternatives to Spotify or people who are like creating tools that could help artists have more control over their career and the distribution of their music. And I think that, Hopefully that's something that we'll start seeing more of like going forward is people talking about like what a music environment could look like where like not all independent artists feel like they have to use things that don't work for them or like an environment where there's just like more alternatives and more tools or just like more conversation about it for now. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. There are a couple things that I wanted to touch on also in this article because it's really dense and really good. And one of the things that that really bothered me was the part where you talk about how corporate branded playlists, of which there are several, I guess, mm-hmm. are, you know, they're encouraged by Spotify to create brand playlists. And they talk, you know, it's like in the language of that Spotify uses in those guidelines is to, you know, create the sound of your brand in, in quotes, which really freaks me out when I think about the sound of your brand. Mm -hmm. And then those brands are putting artists on their playlists and not asking. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to like a Nike playlist, there are bands, as you point out, like Deerhoof, which, you know, is one of the most fiercely independent and, you know, very, very, I mean, they were on my label for 11 albums. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know firsthand how serious they are about not letting their music be equated with brands that they don't believe in. And so to, you know, wake up one morning as an artist and find that your song is being used on a playlist for a brand that you absolutely do not support is really an interesting problem, right, in this in this ecosystem, because under normal circumstances, a brand would have to license a song from an artist if they wanted to, you know, use it in a commercial of any sort. And the point that you make is how can you possibly say that a branded playlist is not a commercial for the brand? Right. Yeah. It was really striking to me how the copy on the Spotify for Brands website, which sort of seems kind of like a sales website or something, this standalone website where like Spotify tries to like lure brands to the platform by explaining to them how great it will be for them to connect with their customers and to like connect with people over music and to shape the soundtrack of their brand and show how cool they are because they love music. And, you know, on, on that aspect of their website, it's very much like suggesting that brand created playlists are a great tool for advertising. And they even, as I explained in the article, they compare the power of music for a brand to the power of like a really good Super Bowl commercial or something. And they talk about like all of these like powerful moments in history of music and helping brands. But then on Spotify, if you, so I read that, you know, on Spotify's terms and conditions or something like that, there's like a, a page that's like, 
you know, guidelines for brands. And it's literally like, don't think of this like it's an ad. Think of this like it's just like a playlist where you're sharing music or something along those lines. And then it's, you know, has all the guidelines that are like, you can't have more than 20 songs. A single artist can't appear more than twice. But there was just like, to me, like a stark difference between like what was on those terms and guidelines for brands versus what was on their website where they're trying to attract brands to the platform. And yeah, that was really striking to me. And just in general, I, I feel like this is an area of the platform that is, presenting a particularly like huge threat to artists' abilities to maintain livings because I feel like so often you hear about how syncs and licensing and commercials and advertising are like some of the only ways that artists can piece together a living for themselves anymore or like scrap together, you know, enough money to keep doing what they're doing. And if there's opportunities for brands to align themselves with musicians and artists that don't require, you know, paying tens of thousands of dollars or less than that in some cases, they're obviously going to pick the other route, which is just having Spotify playlists and tweeting out links to their cool playlists every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Something that was also like really interesting to me, it was interesting to learn about like the evolution of Starbucks music because, you know, Starbucks used to selling CDs in their stores to be like a really huge thing. And I don't really know exactly what happened there, but right around the time they stopped selling CDs in their shops was when they started this partnership with Spotify. And now, you know, in terms of corporate brand owned playlists, I think Starbucks is one of the biggest presences on the platform from what I observed. They have tons of playlists and they even have this app where like when you're in their store, you can like use the app to figure out like what they're playing and kind of like save songs and interact with like their music in that way. Um, and yeah, it's it's just like a really scary and, and strange and weird that artists could be on these playlists and have no idea. Because also, as I write in the article, I didn't know about this at all until I found this website that kind of used Spotify's public API. And you could like type in a band's name and see what the most popular playlists they're on. So I was just typing in my friend's bands and I started seeing that some of them were on Starbucks and Nike playlists. And I would ask them about it and they had have no idea <laughs> that they right. were on them. Right. Definitely. And I think, I mean, what this whole thing gets to, this this notion of corporations being able to build a brand and, and make money off of artists without having to compensate the artist in any way. You know, the artist gets paid for its playlist streams, but then they but they don't have the option for consent. And, you know, I think that in our current music ecosystem, that's our biggest concern for artists is is just having the ability for consent. And that's why YouTube is such a villain, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because they don't even give artists the option to opt out of, you know, having their music used by any and all random people that those people can then, you know, make money off of. And, you know, Apple has the whole argument about, well, we have content ID, so eventually you get paid. Right, if you find it. And if you, you know, but you don't have the choice. You don't get to say, sorry, my music is not available for you to use in any way. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, you know, we're now, that's coming up here too with Spotify is, is there doesn't appear to be an option for an artist to give consent or withhold consent. Instead, they just if their music's on Spotify, it can be uploaded onto any playlist. Is I mean, I, that's what how I understand it. Yeah, and it's weird because I guess, like, in the past, I don't know, you know, I feel like the internet so in so many ways facilitates this, like, culture of anyone being able to post a link to any song or, like, there's so many other ways in which brands have so-called editorial voices online, too. So it's, like, it's not like super unprecedented for like brands to be able to like capitalize on like reposting stuff or like having a blog or like having a feed where they'll post links and stuff. But I feel like this is just tightly wound up in a way that I think is unique. And I totally agree that there should be some sort of either process of artists having to consent because sort of like Greg Sonier from Deerhoof was talking about in the article, like, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of artists who wouldn't necessarily not want to be on those playlists if it's contributing to them getting a bigger check at the end of a cycle, but they should still know there should be like a conversation. And I'm also interested, this is something that I'm not sure about, but I'm interested in knowing, like, I'm sure that brands have to pay more to be on the platform and like, 
to me, it's just like if brands are playing more to be on the platform, then artists should be getting paid more to be on those playlists because otherwise it's just making more money for Spotify for artists to be exploited by these brands. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. That was On the Inside by Cindy Wilson. If you're like us, you love a good newsletter. As an artist, it's a great way to get in touch with your fans, bring them behind the scenes, and offer exclusive opportunities. Share your tips for creating a great newsletter by tweeting us at at KRSFOW and subscribe to ours. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it? 
Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Liz Pelly. Another point you make that I want to get to, or you you have a, this contention, the quote is, it's clear that Spotify is trying to replace labels. Can you tell me why you feel that way? Well, I feel like that idea, you know, is something that I, it's an idea that I learned about just from talking to people who work in music, I think, and people who like talking to artists and people who work at labels and stuff like that. And, and also, I feel like two things, like, I feel like that's a sentiment that I've heard echoed from people who work in the music industry and also just from observing on Spotify, like how clearly the platform prioritizes playlists over albums, I think also sort of like speaks to that, which makes sense because playlists are their tool or, you know, playlists are sort of like what gives their platform value. So if they can make playlists more valuable than albums, then their platform becomes more valuable than labels, or at least that's part of it. So, for example, something you talk about is how, like, if you type in an artist's name on Spotify, it'll show you the Spotify branded playlist that they're on before it shows you their actual albums. And I actually was talking to one of my friends who works in, like, the data science and, like, user experience and stuff like that. And she was showing me how on the platform there's, like, all of these different ways that it's just, like, so clearly in terms of, like, where your eyes go on the screen, like, prioritizes their own content over like the artist picks or the artist albums or whatever. And yeah, then I feel like, I mean, this is not so much just specifically with Spotify, but I feel like, you know, whispers of like these companies like Alphabet Music Services, which is the Google music service that popped up at, and like different management companies that where artists could like, you know, go around the whole concept of having a label and just work directly between like management and streaming services, uh, becoming like a more popular concept. Oh, I see. So they hire people who just directly promote their singles to, to Spotify for playlisting. Yeah. Gotcha. But yeah, that's something that I've like heard is a thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that kind of fits when we're talking about the first part of your article about this notion that savvy artists, I mean, some would say savvy, some would say cynical, Mm -hmm. (laughs) savvy or cynical artists thinking, okay, the way that I'm, you know, I'm going to put all my eggs in the streaming basket and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to create music that's actually going to get playlisted, right? And in a very calculated way. Mm -hmm. And or, you know, maybe artists who are just like, well, I think my music is really great and I'm going to pay somebody to promote it to Spotify. Because one thing that seems really clear from, you know, just anyone who's hired us playlisting services, there's no guarantees. You're not, you know, it's it's pretty impossible to just be like, for sure, we know we're going to get this right. song on a certain playlist like that. That has, you know, that has yet to actually come true if it, maybe it comes true for somebody, but it certainly doesn't come true for anyone I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but But then I feel like, you know, the thing about labels is that labels, our whole job is to invest in artists, not only with money, but with time and expertise and services for artists. And so because none of the streaming platforms have stepped up to do that yet, Mm -hmm. I still feel like an artist is always going to go to somebody who's like, well, you know, I will actually give you money to record this record. I will actually pay for promotion and pay for marketing and stuff. You know, I think I think that's still an attractive proposition that labels can provide that streaming services don't. Now, if streaming services were to turn around and start doing that, where they're like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, we will pay for you to record an album and we'll pay for or we'll pay for you to record a single or whatever it is, mm-hmm. then we'll feature it heavily on our, you know, branded playlists. Then I would totally get with you on like, okay, they're trying to close this down. Like that's actually, mm-hmm. and that, that might be in the future. I mean, yeah. a lot of all, a lot of this stuff is so up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. There have been situations like, you know, I've seen some like examples of Spotify partnering with an artist to pay for banner ads that are like, this artist has this new album out, listen to it on Spotify and sort of like invest in, in that. But it's also investing in, their own advertising as well. And that's like, I can't, I'm trying to think of an example, but I know I've seen like a few examples of like sponsored social media ads that were 
like sort of collaborations between artists and Spotify. Right. But then aside from that, I feel like the thing that you more commonly see them investing in is their own original content, Rap Caviar, Discover Weekly, I'm with the band and things like that. You mean promotion of those playlists? Yeah. 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 Like you'll see definitely. like in, in New York, you'll see Subway ads for them all the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and that makes sense. I mean, you know, that's that's what they do. They're marketing their, yeah. their content. <laughs> which is these playlists. Absolutely. Another thing that you say that I wanted to touch on is that you believe that, well, I'll I'll read the quote because I think the quote is really excellent. Why is the music press generating value for a platform that in every way plans to eliminate it? You're talking about, you know, how Pitchfork and other sites have just embraced, even the New York Times, it was some sort of collaboration with an artist from, you know, a Spotify artist, like listen to this artist and while you're reading the opinion page or something, it's Mm -hmm. these collaborations that the press are getting into with Spotify. What's, what's that all about? Yeah. Well, I feel like one of the main things that I was thinking about while writing this article is this sort of idea of all of the individuals who have like embraced this platform sort of teaching people how to use this platform that will eventually replace them just because it seems, I don't think that it's good, but it seems logical, if that makes sense. Like, it seems like you already see, like in the piece, I talk about how the music press exists for like several different reasons. Like there's like discovery and there's criticism and there's storytelling. And because one of the, you know, we've already seen these services like Spotify start replacing the press and like the discovery side of things. And I just like know from asking people who work at Spotify and also from looking at the different types of folks that they've been hiring that doing more editorial stuff is like definitely on their radar. Something that I do for fun sometimes is like go on LinkedIn and just like search Spotify and like look at all of the different people that they've hired and like it definitely seems like their own original content and production of videos is something that they're investing in. And then I had a panel ask someone who worked at Spotify about like the future of editorial content. And I know that it's definitely something that they're interested in. So it's just like a lot of concrete evidence that doing their own storytelling and editorial work is something that they're like planning on in the future. And it makes sense because if you look at something like their feature, I'm with the band, like that, I don't know if you've seen that, but it basically was like a playlist of artists who had been affected by the travel band and videos of them telling their stories. And just like, it's to me, that seems like one of their like early attempts at like doing a sort of like podcasty video storytelling narrative playlist. And it would totally make sense if a lot more of that stuff started to pop up in the future so yeah I don't know and then also like just in terms of how big Spotify is compared to like most music journalism outlets there's a lot of resources there so and there aren't a lot of resources for journalism these days right so it would make sense to me if if more of that stuff started going in that direction or if streaming platforms started like hiring writers and stuff I mean right yeah and that's interesting. I mean, that's that's interesting because then, I, you know, that brings up the question of if most of their listeners are lean back listeners, are, are those people also people who are interested in music criticism? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. It's hard to know. I mean, I think the thing about the streaming platforms in general, I mean, I think the only thing we can say at this point is that you know, we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, your scenario is totally legit. Like, I think that that is also very, very possible. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that things will happen that we haven't thought of, you know, that, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what's going to happen. This IPO could change everything in a really big way, including, you know, having Spotify just completely disappear from the landscape, in which case we would all have to figure something else out which would be an interesting (laughs) result. Mm -hmm. But one thing, you know, this is just a little anecdote, but if you go to Spotify, all of the front content is, like you said, it's a certain genre, it's a certain mood. There's other playlists, there's other types of things on there. But like, it's not, if you're like really into punk rock, you and you go to Spotify and you look at the 
first part of Spotify, you're not going to see anything that speaks to you because that's, you know, punk is not where they've put their energy, mm-hmm. right? That's not, there's not a ton of punk playlists. There's not, you know, much going on with that. And I've even, you know, speaking to people from Spotify, that's not really, they don't feel that, that that's where their bread and butter lies. That's not, they're not moving in that direction. So just as an experiment, we put up a punk playlist on Spotify like a week ago at Kill Rockstars. And it was the playlist that got the most people subscribing in the shortest amount of time of any of the playlists that we've made for Spotify. Mm-hmm. Like in one day, <laughs> we had a ton of people. And so that's the kind of thing that gives me hope in this environment because I always feel like you always have to look around the edges for where people are agitating. And because there are people out there who don't just want to listen to something that, you know, Starbucks tells them will go well with their latte. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe that there are. There's the 10% of us that that care and that really love music and will always be looking for that stuff. Yeah. So I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna. I'm not trying to say, like, let's look on the bright side. I'm just saying we don't know what's yeah. going to happen. Well, I feel like there's, like, multiple things in terms of, like, the future. And it's, like, to me personally, it kind of seems like settling in this way for this platform that like doesn't serve the types of artists that I'm interested in supporting but at the same time like it's different for everyone and that's I feel like gets back at that idea of like hopefully in the future like there will be lots of different options for lots of different types of artists because this platform is already so big and has so much power in music that like the path to something more sustainable will inevitably involve there being folks like imagining like new realities, but also figuring out what works for their artists within the system that exists already until like we get there. So on that end, I feel like it makes sense to kind of like think of how to make this system work for artists that it's currently not working for and kind of like in tandem doing that with like, trying to like collaborate with people who are trying to come up with new ideas because I do feel like this is like a period of time where folks in independent music like need to really be like creative in terms of thinking about something other than this since it's not really working for a lot of people but you know that's all like pretty big picture stuff. I love it. Big picture stuff is is what we're <laughs> what we're doing here. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, thank you, Liz Pelly. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Future of What. This was so great to talk to you. Thanks. It was really great to talk to you too.
That was Brother by Cindy Wilson. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for the perfect gift for a music fan? Check out Rockabilia. From patches to leftover tour merch, Rockabilia offers over 500,000 official items music fans will love. Rockabilia.com. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Peter Harris of Resonate. Peter, welcome to The Future of What? Thanks for having me again, Portia. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you again because, I mean, there's several reasons. One, I sort of wanted to catch up and see how it's been going in the months since we spoke last. Have you recap for us what Resonate is and then let us know how it's been going. Resonate is, which you can find us at resonate.is. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's very geeky kind of joke. Resonate is doing good. Um, we're a streaming music provider and we're unique in a couple of different ways, which is that we're a cooperative, meaning that all of our members are co-owners in the platform. And we're also unique for having a stream to own model, which kind of bridges the best of both worlds. So you get to have instant low cost access to try out some new tunes and then move to being an owner when you really start to fall in love with a particular work or the person that created it. Fantastic. And you guys have been, are you live yet? Is this live? We're in beta. You're in yeah, beta. It's, okay. it's, yeah. So we've been in beta for five or six months now. It is moving a little slow because we are a volunteer run organization. You know, as I mentioned, a cooperative, the reason for this is so that we can kind of really build something where artists don't get abused in the long term. And, you know, to be honest, the capitalist sort of shareholder investor owned model has lots of problems for artists in the long term, as we've seen with some recent news with another streaming service that's across town here in Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a lot of issues around that. And so the upside is that creators are in control and and have some voice because they literally co-own the business. You know, I'm the founder. I've got a single share and every artist and every fan that's on the platform also has a single share. And the downside of that is it's a little more challenging in terms of getting things built because investors usually tend to want things where they can share equity and they don't get equity in in the project. So that means that our development moves a little bit slower, but I'm very proud of this amazing volunteer team that we've got from folks all over the world, really, that have contributed because they really care and are super passionate about building something that's really true and meaningful, both for listeners and for the artists that create the music. Well, I wanted to talk to you too, because Resonate is a nice example of what would be ideal in terms of justice and fairness and freedom would be a streaming service that was owned by artists in which artists got paid fairly rather than the streaming models that have popped up, which have, as you mentioned, been heavily sort of venture capitalist funded, you know, where they're looking for, you know, shareholders are looking for a certain return. That's a model that that's, strictly in a certain position in terms of, you know, the artists and the work of the artists is is just part of like the cost of goods. It's not yeah. the end all and be all of the mission of the platform. So Resonate is kind of a great example of this, but as you just mentioned, there are some pitfalls to trying to put something like this together when you don't go the path of venture capitalist investment. You know, I, I just came across a, a quote on it was a post about is the album dead? And they, they quoted Brian Eno who said, and I'll be paraphrasing, but he basically said the best thing for albums is very small budgets and deadlines. The thing that kills albums is endless budget and no deadline. (laughs) And, and I thought about that in the context of us. And it's sort of like when you do have limited resources, you really have to think in very clever ways. And, you have to experiment in ways that are kind of outside the box. And I think that's, that's the same thing, you know, is true when you're dealing with a a limited budget, trying to get an album out, you have to figure out clever workarounds for things. So it's true for a lot of creative endeavors. So all good in the end. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. 
And I do think that this model is very exciting and that this is sort of the promise of the internet, right? Yeah. That, that we have this way that we can figure out this platform, <laughs> this space <laughs> where we can yeah. create and people can be innovative like you guys are being. Let's get into exactly how you envision artists getting paid. Because I noticed on the site that there's like a building up thing. If somebody listens once, it triggers a certain amount. And then if they li listen again to the same song, there's like a little bit more. And then they get to like a certain number of listens and they basically have, it's like equivalent to having purchased the song as an iTunes download. Right. Yeah, that's the stream to own model and it's a progressive scale. It basically works off of the simple logic of that it doubles every time you listen to it. And on first glance, that sort of sounds a little scary from a listener side, like you have to keep track of it, but it, but it actually doesn't work that way and because it starts off so incremental and the way exponential curves work is that it's really, really low in the early part and then it gets bigger at the end that anxiety about this different model, it just kind of goes away after a while. But what happens is that you start to identify with what you're listening to in a different frame of mind. Because when you like something, you know, you favorite it, you know, you're going to listen to that again. You enter into a different awareness of the relationship between yourself and that the person that made that that work. And the economic exchange that happens there mirrors that. Yeah. And so to, to be even more specific, I feel very fortunate to have kind of come up pre-internet in terms of, you know, I remember music scarcity. And so I've got that kind of very visceral experience of what was it like to hear a song on the radio and then be in a music shop or be at a friend's house that was playing it or it was, you know, on somebody's boom box that was passing down the street. You know, there's that electric kind of excitement around being able to hear something. And what happened in that process is like, it's songs grow on you over time mm -hmm. and certain songs, yeah, either they affect you or they don't, but the ones that do, there's almost like, uh, well, I don't know if I want to say electrochemical reaction. And I think that's something that's different about this model versus the just sort of endless open free for all that you get in other services where there's no val there's no inherent value connected to it. And yeah. I think that's what this app kind of does in a way is it reconnects that, that sense of value to, to the work in a meaningful way in a really human centered way. Yeah. And I just read somewhere, and of course I'm not going to remember the exact study or the exact numbers, but it was Something along the lines of there are like two major kinds of listeners to streaming services. One is the new discovery person who sort of listens like a little bird, like listens to this and then listens to that and then listens to that. And it's like what's new and what's hot. They're they're sort of on to the next thing. And then there's the like, I don't know what we'd call it, like legacy listener or something, but like the person who puts on what they like and listens to what they like, like all day long. So your system makes a ton of sense when you think about listeners like that, because, you know, it's like if it were me, let's say, and, and we were paying like that, I would just be basically giving my paycheck to Duran Duran, which is fine. I feel like that's important. <laughs> you know, they've earned it. They've been around a long time. They worked hard. I love this. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, oh, man. It's so not bad. totally dating too. That's really... Uh, I oh, I, I'm old. I'm old. I'm, I'm ready to tell everybody <laughs> that. It's okay. <laughs> Well, Peter from Resonate, thank you so much for coming back and talking to me again on the future of what? Very happy to. Always great to, to chat. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Cindy Wilson and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.